0: It feels like a lifetime ago now, but October the 11th, 2019, was the International Day of the Girl. The official hashtag? Day of the Girl. Michelle Obama, Chelsea Clinton, and actress Kerry Washington tweeted their support. Lots of Gen Z and Generation Alpha girls joined the discussion on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. But under another hashtag? March for Sisterhood. Girls posted videos of themselves marching, accompanied by a cause that they believed in. You're hearing a line of girls marching from Villarreal Elementary in Olmito, Texas. Girls supporting girls. As a tiny girl in a Ninjago t-shirt marched for pay equity, two football players marched under the banner of brave, not perfect. Others uploaded videos of themselves on TikTok, marching for climate justice, trans inclusion and disability representation. Netting 250,000 uses of the hashtag and more than a billion views in the three weeks following the campaign, the March for Sisterhood hashtag outperformed the original day of the girl hashtag itself. The digital march was put on by Girls Who Code, an organization that teaches, as the name suggests, Girls to Code. Its larger goal is closing the gender gap in tech. When Girls Who Code wanted to launch something for International Day of the Girl, they called on Quinn Mai's marketing agency, Moving Image and Content. MINC's speciality is the intersection of digital marketing and Gen Z. Together with Girls Who Code, her agency built a campaign around social justice and activism with content created by girls, for girls, not marketed at them. I march. I march. I march to take up space.
1: I march because migration is a human right. I march for a livable future. Because stereotypes don't define me. For everyone on a gender
0: journey. On International Day of the Girl, March for Sisterhood became not just an online celebration, but an action. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising the good, the bad, and the ugly. On this episode, we called in the Gen Z expert herself, Quinn May. We reached her at her home in Brooklyn back in April. We talked about covid how the pandemic is forcing brands to embrace a digital future, and what's important to the next generation of consumers. Quinn, thanks for being here. So you run a digital content and strategy agency. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm assuming that you're not running it from the office right now, that you're running it from home.
1: (laughs) I'm running it from my bedroom. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I started the company um, 10 years ago before iPads even came out. And I remember thinking, oh, finally, brands are going to embrace digital because clearly the iPad was such a revolution that people are going to understand that digital is going to be the forefront, the most important thing. And, you know, honestly, 10 years later, even pre-COVID, you're seeing, you know, I was still meeting with so many brands that were hesitant about moving the communications to digital, mm-hmm. um, hesitant about giving voice to their consumer, has about even breaking down their visual aesthetic. The commitment in our industry, which is advertising towards beautiful imagery, has really kept us from being in sync with consumer behavior and interest. So, yeah, I started the company.
0: And when is this? This was
1: 2010,
0: 2010. Okay. Can you talk about some of the first sort of projects or clients that you had then?
1: The first few projects were really interesting because I don't think anyone knew what we were talking about <laughs> in 2010. So we had You're in
0: advertising, no one does.
1: Nobody does. That's true. No. That's true. Um but I was really lucky. You know, I really had the fortune of having a few clients who were willing to just take the chance. You know, I remember my first project was Elle, a magazine, and I knew the publisher and she you know she was curious about what was happening in digital, and she gave me, I think, fourteen thousand dollars to do a project. And then Steve Madden, who is a complete baller, gave me a project to do the first influencer program, you know that i I think ever because I remember talking to this woman who was representing influencers at the time, and we were her first client. So you know, I had a couple of, of really great clients who I had known from my traditional days who luckily, were curious about digital, who trusted me, who, who just threw me very little money, but enough to get me started. But I have to say, you know, in my sector, which is more at that time, retail, fashion, beauty, people were very slow to embrace digital. You know, I would say that even pre-COVID, we were still, you know, seeing clients who, were, who understood that digital was important, but hadn't truly invested in it. I think because they didn't know it, they didn't really understand it. They didn't use it themselves.
0: Uh, You said you came from traditional advertising. So where were you before you started your company? And what convinced you to start your own digitally focused agency?
1: I had run a successful advertising agency working on the rebranding of Burberry and De Beers and Smartwater.
0: Which agency was that?
1: It was called Lipman. It was a, a a great agency, you know, in the heart of the meatpacking district. What I call the golden years of advertising, right? So, you know, really two thousand two, and then I left two thousand ten. You know, it was about creativity, and there was like optimism, and the the things that were working were still working, right? TV, print, outdoor. Um, but I remember. I was working on a media plan for Diane Furstenberg. She was one of our clients. And I polled my staff and said, okay, where are you getting your inspiration from? And everyone had listed websites and things online that I had barely paid much attention to. And I was thinking, why am I advertising in vogue when all these beautiful young girls that work with me we're looking online and none of those online publications or blogs at that time, you know, were on our list of media. And I really, at that time, and I think this is just before 2008, I think this was 2007 is when I said, no, I, I need to go digital. I'm young enough to do it. And, you know, I was luckily successful enough in traditional advertising and I squirreled in a way enough money so I could actually do it. Um, in 2000, 2009, and I opened my company in 2010.
0: And what's different between 2009, 2010, and and today?
1: You know, I think the key difference between 2008 and now is in 2008, there was definitely a, a fear. You know, there was budget cuts, everyone was cutting everything down, but there wasn't a mortality question, and there wasn't a, a total distrust in government and in in the competency of government. So I think there was there was definitely fear and sadness around 2008 but there was this sense of okay this sucks we're going to push through this you know what do we need to do and, and obviously I you know I was forced to do tons of layoffs tons of belt tightening tons of contract negotiations which are which are happening now too
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I think that at that time there was a sense of okay we know this model, we understand financial disruption. now civilization doesn't have a sense of what this feels like. there's no logic to what's right. going on so today, what I would say that for our clients and, and you know we're pretty lucky we we have pretty international big brands you know million and trillion dollar brands. I think what's happening is just this brand shelter in place <laughs> you know where they are very afraid to do any marketing because they know that the channels for sale are not open to them. A lot of the brands have not been really investing in e-commerce because it was either, you know, in the low, you know, one digit or 10% of their sales. So they haven't really invested in e-commerce the way that a DTC brand would have invested in it.
0: What's a DTC brand for those who don't know?
1: A direct-to-consumer, you know, a brand that sells directly to the consumer like a Casper or a Warby Parker. Right. Um, those brands really invested in their e-commerce and their social and their digital footprint. Those are the brands that can still sell with all the store closures.
0: Although most of Warby Parker's sales are through stores.
1: They do now. They do now. But in the beginning, right. their mission was really uh, yeah. digital. So they really invested a tremendous amount of money in those channels. And I think when you think of luxury brands today who, you know, invested a little bit, but they were still very reliant on department stores, you know, big box retailers to get their goods out.
0: And Many of them don't shell with brands like um, Amazon, right? So Amazon doesn't carry any luxury goods as far as I'm aware.
1: Mm -hmm. Not legally. And it's definitely (laughs) non-essential at the moment. No, no, it's not essential. So, I whose think,
0: marketing is successful right now? Who's who's actually doing it well at the moment?
1: Yeah, I think that brands who who have taken on a public service messaging and marketing are doing mm-hmm. well. You know, whether it's Chipotle allowing you to have lunch together virtually, or Nike, which you know is giving people their training app for free. I mm-hmm. think brands that are moving into this public service. Mm-hmm. um side of marketing are actually doing really well because they are building and you know banking on trust for the future.
0: And that's that's a challenge, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You have to be in a certain financial position as a company to be able to do that, but you also have to be pretty strong-minded and be able to look quite far out mm-hmm. to be able to say we're going we're going to still continue to spend at the moment we're going to tell a story about we're there for you. And knowing that this thing that we're in right now may last Another nine months.
1: Absolutely.
0: There, I don't think there are that many uh, brands or you know marketeers out there that are willing to to take that sort of investment.
1: I, I think that's short sighted. I think that you can still do something, you know, because of social media. You can still give away experiences or access or inspiration or mm-hmm. tips free. I mean, look, we all know that organic reach is at an all time low when it comes to Instagram and Facebook. But you can still in your own way through your email database, through your social channels, through your own, you know, the your website, through your staff, Mm -hmm. still do good in any measure. And I don't think that consumers would hold, you know, um, a smaller brand up to the Comparison of a CPG or a Nike, but I think it's about giving, giving what you can in a time of need. And I think that sense of trust and empathy, you know, when you think about social media, you have to think about people. You know, if, if, if you had a friend who only asked you to borrow things from you, borrow money, borrow goods and services from you, and only asked you for things and you got really sick and that person never called to check on you, how would you feel about that friend? You right. know, And I think it's the same with brands. You know, if, if you've sold me goods and services this entire time when I was healthy, when I had a job, (laughs) when I was out and about, and then I was really struggling, lonely, filled with grief and fear. And I didn't know if my job was going to be there at the end of this. And you didn't reach out to me. How would I feel about you post COVID? And I think that. there was an interesting report that came out from Edelman, you know, who do um, trust reports, and mm-hmm. it said something like 65% of consumers surveyed, and this is, this is in the U.S., but I think it's going to be pretty similar throughout the world. 65% of consumers said that how a brand responded to the crisis would have a huge impact on their likelihood to purchase in the future. Right. Because we remember how people treat you, and because of social media, brands are almost like people. And so I think we'll remember the brands that were compassionate and empathetic, um, and that level of trust is something that yeah, I think with Gen Z, you know, rising, will be more and more important when it comes to consumer decisions.
0: I think it's a very interesting topic, right? And there is a question mark around you know the responsibility of a brand. Mm. If a if a company is in a capitalist business, is it the responsibility of that business? To have to look after other people? Is that is mm. not their responsibility just to sell stuff and to increase shareholder value? Why should they have to take on that responsibility to look after everybody? Isn't that what the state and government is there for?
1: Mm. That's a good question. I can I can speak about the US and and I think no matter what side of the political divide spectrum you're on. I think in the U.S. there's been a slow erosion of trust in institutions, you know, and and I can think of many countries are going through the same thing we are right now, where there's such a huge divide between political parties. So what I think has happened in the U.S. in particular is that when you stop trusting in your own government, you turn to the next big thing Mm. and the next big thing for a lot of American consumers are brands, Right. You know, um, we know their CEOs on a first-name basis. Right. We know their story. We, we've we watched movies about them, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so I think when brands like Apple come out and say, we're doing these face masks, you cheer for them. You, you think, oh my God, thank you, Tim Cook, for doing something that my president couldn't do. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, out of default, Customers are looking towards brands because there's nobody else. There's nobody else to I mean,
0: some brands can take advantage of that situation too. So you talk about Apple, but who who else is a brand that in the States you can can particularly trust or or in this instance you think is up their game?
1: You know, I think Nike has done a really good job and Nike has followed the same formula in the US as they had in China, which is giving away as much as they possibly could. You know, Mm -hmm. what can we do to give you more and more of what you need to be healthy? And, and they were very smart because it's all through sport that through sport, you can find a mental and physical release and calmness. And I think they've, they stayed in their lane very, very well in China and in the U.S. by saying, you know, let's give you free training. Let's give you, give you ways to work out at home. And they never really in China pushed any product whatsoever. It became a second-order effect to the fact that people were working out more. They felt really good about Nike for giving them what they needed in times of crisis without actually selling or pushing any product. And the natural inclination for people was, oh, well, I'm going to buy this product because they were so good to me.
0: So just switching gears a bit, I'd love to get into your background. You were born in Vietnam, but you grew up in Silicon Valley.
1: So, um, born in Vietnam, my mother had the bravery to bribe an American GI to get us paperwork to leave the country, you know, pretty much right after Saigon fell. Um, Came to America where my parents, who were lawyers, we Mm -hmm. came here and worked in, you know, the strawberry farms of California. And they worked their way from agricultural workers into tech because, you know, with their luck, they landed in Silicon Valley. They had no idea because they went there because there was jobs and there was, you know, they could pick strawberries, you know, sell French fries, you know, things like that. But they landed smack dab in Silicon Valley. And at that time, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you could actually go into the tech space without knowing English. Because it wasn't about communication. It was about building computers and building machinery. So, From there, I went to Berkeley, then came to New York right after. I worked with great photographers for a while, like Anna Leibovitz, ended up in advertising, started a company called, this is so digital 1.0, called Visualocity (laughs) in 2001, (sighs) (laughs) which was a a cloud-based platform for artists to share their portfolio. this is the time, I mean, I'm sure you could talk about the early days of WeTransfer, but these are the times when a JPEG would crash your computer.
0: So this is uh, early dribble.
1: Mm -hmm. When I did Visualocity and then I went into advertising.
0: If you're in Silicon Valley and your parents are uh, are in technology, why would you move into the world of advertising or or more into the, the aesthetic side of business as opposed to the technical?
1: You know, I think that 2000, 2001, you know, the, the first dot-com burst. But what I I think just out of sheer boredom at that time, technology wasn't iterating as fast. We created this product, we launched it, and there wasn't this iterate and learn mentality that sort of came a little bit later. Right. It was almost like those days of, you know, Adobe where you launched a product, you put it in a disk, you loaded it, and then it just sat there. And frankly, I just started getting really bored and I really had loved the arts ever since college and wanted to move into something that was a little bit more evolving and changing and and culturally interesting. You know, fast forward 10 years later, I think starting my own company, which is, is focused more on digital, was the marriage of those two worlds of like the art and science of it, bringing in like the tech side, which I still love a lot. But bringing in the human component, you know, how do you use tech to service human needs and human interests?
0: Which has never been more important than right now when everybody's at home.
1: Post-COVID, because everyone has to get comfortable with, you know, virtual meetings and live streaming and just connecting through digital. I think I think that things are going to change a lot. Executives of brands who are the decision makers are going to feel much more comfortable because they would have had that firsthand experience that they didn't have before
0: COVID happened. So let's get into that for a bit, because we transfers done, I mean, it's 10 years old, mm-hmm. similar to you. We, for a long time, used to go and travel to places like Paris and Milan, talking to the luxury goods firms, because we had billboards, in theory, billboards on the platform. Mm-hmm. So we always believed that this was a brand safe space where all of the big brands, you know, and I came from, Stella McCartney and Gucci Group, so I just assumed that they would get this and they were buying billboards already, so they mm-hmm. would just buy on WeTransfer. Yeah. Until probably 2018, 19, that really wasn't the case. And when you talk about them being slow to catch up, I think the luxury world has been operating at snail's pace. So if now this is the reality that people are not going to be going and rushing out into a busy Bond Street or you know Fifth Avenue to go shopping... And there isn't a great e-commerce experience for these luxury goods brands. How are they going to get their products out there?
1: I think that they're going to have to really jump into the, the fray of digital because I don't think that the other channels that they've relied on are going to be open to them. I think,
0: So do you think they're going to have to sell on Amazon?
1: Um, mid-tier brands are going to have to sell on Amazon. You don't have that infrastructure. You don't. Your margins aren't so high that you can build your own warehouse. <laughs> you know. Um, so what's a
0: mid tier brand?
1: Um, contemporary price point would be like three hundred, six hundred dollars, something like that. Anything below, I would say five hundred dollars, would be something that you're not getting Louis Vuitton margins, where your margins are off of a leather handbag. You know, you might have spent. $250 making it, but you sold it for $3,500. Those high margin, really luxury goods and mostly leather goods companies, I think can afford to sell their own inventory because their volume isn't high. But I think the biggest struggle for mm-hmm. a lot of brands and why I think they're going to be forced to go to Amazon is they they don't have the fulfillment.
0: So won't the likes of Ukes and uh, net just take over that part?
1: Again, I think it depends on where you are in the spectrum of cost. I think Net-A-Porter, mm-hmm. Farfetch, Moda Operandi in the fashion space are such, again, high price points. And net a won't take you know, mid-tier or lower-tier brands, athleisure brands, for example. If we were to isolate the fashion industry, I would say that because so many brands were still selling through department stores, they were very reticent to invest in digital and e-commerce because it was such a small percentage of their sales. And they logically thought, okay, if it's only 4% of my yearly sales, my revenue, you know, I I need to be there, but I don't need to really invest in it.
0: So just staying on this theme of luxury, the traditional way that the luxury goods firms have managed to, you know, promote themselves started with Um, them doing a show. So there would be a fashion show in New York or London or Paris or wherever. Mm -hmm. Buyers would attend. Buyers would then make a selection of stuff they were going to go and take to Neiman or Selfridges or wherever else it was going to be sold. Mm -hmm. And people would, you know, hurry between 25 different shows over the course of a week in Paris. Mm -hmm. Post-COVID, do you think that that structure um, will exist? That people would just drop back in to doing the fashion shows again?
1: You know, fashion shows have long exceeded its lifespan. And I think that brands were still really hanging on that model out of habit. Now, there are definite exceptions. There are brands like Chanel or Louis Vuitton men's, where they were able to create shows that were cultural experiences. They were extravaganzas.
0: Available to people, not just in the room.
1: Exactly. And they were cultural moments. You know, I remember when right. Virgil Abloh did his first show for Louis Vuitton, it was as much a cultural moment as a fashion show. You know, he had all these mm-hmm. incredible black men on the runway showing off their pride. You know, so it was, you know, there, there are a few brands that sort of like are exceptions to this rule, but I would say most brands we're still holding on to this as a model that only for themselves and a and a small group of people were still participating and paying attention and for a lot of brands a lot of really big big brands too it would be their single biggest marketing expense for the entire year
0: right i always find it bizarre that you would basically funnel all of your money into a period of time where everybody was doing exactly the same thing exactly. and then try to compete with everybody else for awareness when very few can compete with the likes of Chanel or Louis Vuitton. Just simply don't have that sort of money.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, Virgil came in as the artistic director for menswear for Louis Vuitton. And mm-hmm. Vir- I mean, Virgil's a disruptor. So him attending you know, fashion shows was almost you know, the same as Kanye using George Kondo on the cover of a, of an album. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a sort of friction that I think they're trying to create by um, rubbing, you know, the old world against the new. If you take Virgil as an example, you know, what do you think Virgil is going to do next?
1: I, I had the fortune of working with them. Um, I worked with Kanye on the first three seasons of Yeezy and, and Virgil was, you know, a part of his design team. You know, when people say, oh, you worked with Kanye, how was that? You know, like basically saying, how awful was he? And I would say he was my best client because he was so imaginative and Virgil as well, open. Actually, they're both incredibly democratic. They think of their roots and they think of who they are and they want everyone else to have access.
0: And what were you doing with them? So what exactly were you doing?
1: For his first three shows for Yeezy, you know, he he was working with Adidas and then he took back the brand himself. He mounted, going back to fashion shows, actually, he mounted fashion shows But his team came to us and said, you know, hey, we're going to do this fashion show, but we don't want it for just the people in the room we want to get as many people to experience as possible. And I think it was two reasons. One, of course, to have the media, but I think more importantly was, which was really important to Kanye at that time, is that I don't want to ostracize my fan base. I don't want to ostracize that kid who listens to my music, who buys all my albums. I don't want him to not see it, you know? And I don't want the show only to be for Anna Winter in the first row. So we did cinema live streams. What does that mean? So the show was filmed, as if it was a feature film. And okay. Vanessa Beecroft was the artist who staged the show. So they were fashion shows, they were more almost like, you know, Vanessa Beecroft art installations. And so we filmed it the same way you would film a live concert or an art film because it was a Vanessa B. Croft piece. And then mm-hmm. we would beam it to satellite and stream it right into cinemas live.
0: Here we are at Daisy Show. My wife, my sister,
1: so, we let be right. so we chose four p m as the hour when everywhere in the world somebody was awake at four p m Eastern time you know so in Australia, the fan could go to the movie theater at eight in the morning, you know skip school <laughs> and go. But in Moscow, they could go to the cinema at midnight and see the show you know at first, if I remember correctly, this is a couple of years ago, at first, we gave away tickets for free. Then when we launched The Life of Pablo, his album, we supplemented the tickets, but they were the price of a movie ticket. It was, you know, I think like $7 or something like that. But it was so critical that everyone got to see the experience, hear the album all simultaneously. And it was just this very democratic approach of, hey, everyone should have access. And I think Virgil's still, you know, continuing that message, you know, with his IKEA collaborations and with Louis Vuitton he can't make a lot of products that are you know that are that accessible but mm-hmm. he's using his reach you know with his own brand and with brands like IKEA to say hey it's not the cost of an item it's the intentionality that design and fashion can be for everybody no matter how much money you have and the shift is going to keep continuing because i think as gen z grows up and they're 24 now they don't have the same Snobbery, as the baby boomers <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. a little bit of the Gen X generation. They don't have that need to feel like to be better than anyone else. You have to push people down. They don't have that mentality. Their Their Gen Z mentality is so much more about equality and social justice.
0: Thank you. No, it was a great conversation. Thank you. And that concludes our episode today. Thanks to Quinn for carving out some time in her quarantine for us. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing by Elise Hugh, and sound engineering by Mark Bush. Thanks to our wonderful studio here in Amsterdam Center Sound, you can find influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please subscribe, rate and review the show. It helps keep Influence going. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next week.